Thank you for downloading this podcast. To support future episodes, please subscribe and consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. Welcome to From What If to What Next, the podcast that is led and shaped by your what-if questions. This podcast allows us to imagine a world that we could still create if we were able to bring about a deep shift, one underpinned by imagination, courage and action. As the author Astrid Lindgren once put it, everything great that ever happened in this world happened first in someone's imagination. For this episode, I've slightly adapted a question sent in by subscriber Rebecca Kinge. She asked, what if we stopped people being vulnerable to getting ill? What if keeping everyone healthy was the responsibility of us all together? And I've adapted and broadened her question slightly. And in this episode, we'll be asking, what if doctors' surgeries were catalysts for the transition? As the conversation gathers pace about how we might build back better after COVID-19, more and more thinking is turning towards holistic, joined-up solutions. Within the NHS, there's a growing movement of GPs and practices who are putting... Our exploration today is around how different our lives, our health, our sense of the possibilities the future offers could be if we took a more imaginative approach, and if GP surgeries saw themselves as catalysts for the transition of the wider community towards a low-carbon, more resilient and more connected future. To explore this question, we're joined by two great pioneers in this field who are taking very real and practical steps to reimagine what a GP surgery could be like. By RSPB Scotland and every GP surgery on the island which prescribes nature connection to patients. It gives them activities to do in nature for every month of the year. For example, activities for May include bury your face in the grass and turn over a rock and see what's underneath. Dr. Michael Dixon is a Devon GP and has held numerous national leadership roles, including the first chair of the NHS Alliance, president of the NHS Clinical Commissioners, and as a leader within the GP clinical commissioning movement. He is currently chair of the College of Medicine and clinical champion for social prescription for NHS England, chair of the Institute for Social Prescription and medical advisor to the HRH, the Prince of Wales. He's a visiting professor at University College London and at the University of Westminster a senior fellow in public policy at the University of Birmingham and an honorary senior lecturer at the Peninsula Medical School in Exeter. Dr Jane Myatt has been working as a GP at the Caversham Group Practice in Kentish Town, North London, since 1997. She's a passionate advocate of finding alternative patient-centred approaches to long-term conditions. Inspired by pioneering GPs such as Sam Everington and by Michael, and assisted by Transition Kentish Town, Jane founded The Listening Space, a project centred around a community garden in the courtyard of her family practice. 
The space has allowed alternative ways of working holistically and collaboratively with patients and the local community. Jane is a GP trainer and primary care educator for UCL Medical School, including acting as one of the lecturers in culinary medicine. She's a member of the British Holistic Medical Association and one of the 50 founding members of their Real Food campaign. Jane is particularly proud to be a member of the Highgate Union of Spoon Workers, a subject for another podcast in its own right. I think. <laughs> so Jane and Michael, welcome to From What If To What Next. Hello. Hello, thank you. So I'd like to start by inviting you both to do the exercise that we always use to start this podcast. So I'd like to ask you both and invite listeners to, to make yourself comfortable and to close your eyes. I'd like you to imagine that it's 2030 and thanks to a remarkable and historic shift in society that took place over the past 10 years, a seismic and deep cascade in positive changes that in 2020 felt unimaginable, we now live in a very different world with very different approaches to healthcare and in which GP surgeries are, in fact, catalysts for the transition. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk through your imagination. Take us into that future. What does it look like, feel like, sound like, taste like? Walk us through the doors of a GP surgery or out into the community and give us a taste of how, in your imagination, this has manifested. Jane? So I will have left my home having been well rested for a change and I would see many familiar and friendly faces along the way as I am woven into my community. I am theirs and they are mine. People would be tending gardens. There wouldn't be as many fences or walls. But where there needs to be boundaries, there would be rich hedgerows. The air is filled with birdsong again, and London looks more like a rich parkland or forest. There is no need for a lot of traffic, as we have learnt to find what we need right where we are. And when I reach my practice, there is the smell of delicious breakfast being prepared by those in our community who are enjoying the magic of the midnight kitchen space we have created, learning skills of how to be together, how to stir slowly and weave together the sum of our many parts into something much richer and more delicious. And along the way, learning much more than how to cook in the process Ingredients will have been taken from the surrounding patchwork of cultivated green spaces nestled between areas of residual wildness, I think. We'll gather together to eat along a long and welcoming table before we start our day's work. We will have developed many different healing activities as we are now wise and humble healers who can provide one-to-one counsel when needed to mend broken or damaged stories, but we would often take our part in small groups where we learn to support each other again. A good day's work. Beautiful. Thank you, Jane. Michael? Well, I, I, like Jane, I'm going to start off going into the surgery with all the gardens around with lots of information on how to grow the plants, how to cook them and what their medical uses are. Outside the surgery will be lots of fruit and vegetables and herbal plants that you can buy again, with that information. And as you go in, you'll pass the cafe on the left, which uh, has got patient groups booked in almost every hour during the day, whether it's a fibromyalgia self-help group or a back pain self-help group or a premenstrual tension or irritable bowel. And in the other corner of the cafe, there'll be a a demonstration, a, a good cooking demonstration, all this done by volunteers, I should add. And then as you go into the surgery, you'll pass the link worker, the social prescribing link worker's room. But outside, she'll have a little console where you can yourself 
um, signposts to all sorts of non-medical interventions that uh, might be helpful. Uh, you'll then pass the new person who's only come in the last five years, the community uh, volunteer facilitator, whose role is to make sure everyone can volunteer, that there are lots of options open, especially for children, and the people that need voluntary services get them. And incidentally, you won't be a, a patient of the practice anymore, you won't register, you'll be a member with rights and responsibilities, and volunteering will be part of that. And then you go into the main part of the waiting room where you sign in, you will put your symptoms and the reason you're there, and you will be able to uh, do a sort of quick check before you go and see your doctor. Uh, you'll be able to see your own doctor. Uh, you may have to wait 10 days, two weeks to see your own doctor. But if not, you will see a doctor of a segregated team because these surgeries will have 12 or 15 partners, but they'll be divided into teams of three. So you will always see a doctor that you know, even if it's not your own accountable registered doctor. And then finally, the doctors themselves will not only be seeing you for care and surgery as they do today, but each will be funded for a half day each week to do uh, local community health with some attached to the school, some attached to the council, some attached to local retail, uh, in my area, Devon to farmers, uh, responsible for improving the health locally and also very much engaged in future planning. So the planning no longer becomes a question of the council having a plan and the developer doing it in their own fashion, but in fact health the, the GP is responsible and everyone else actually creating a plan which the developer needs to keep to. So creating a healthy environment around the surgery. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'd like to start by asking each of you to give us a sense of what you've already done in your own work to move us closer to this being a reality. Can you tell us a story of something you've created or been part of creating? Well, some of what I've described. So the patient groups, I think, have been very important because increasingly the health service is going to have to be there's much provision that's to be done by the patients themselves in the community. So it's really pushing the boat out in that sense. So patient groups are, are very important uh, and also patient health initiatives like walking groups, which we have of various grades, and also health information. We have uh, question time evenings when people come, uh, we discuss a subject with a, a so-said expert, a GP, pharmacist and complementary practitioner, but quite often the patients start talking amongst themselves and then eventually forming their own groups. And I think for me, that is the single most important part of general practice of the future. It's about the individual patients and the community being part of the provision. One of the things I like about what we've done are our waiting room afternoons, which started as a bit of a thought experiment a couple of years ago. We were looking for some activities because we'd started the gardening group in our courtyard garden, but people weren't coming so much in the winter. So I really wanted to do something in our underutilised waiting room where it's warm. There's a lot of fuel poverty in our community and a lot of isolation and loneliness in spite of the fact that we live in a densely populated urban area. Friday afternoons at the time were my afternoon off and I never had time to do all the crafting I liked. So I had a lot of spare materials at home and so together with a patient of mine we decided to sit 
Thunberg-like in the waiting room with a crafting box inspired by Sarah Corbett, who I actually met with you, Robin Totness, when you gave a talk in the cafe when she was launching her craftivism book. So inspired by some of her principles, we decided to start a little craftivism group in the waiting room. And it gathered pace so that within a few weeks, we had a lovely group of about 10 or 12, mainly women coming and joining, but really across the spectrum of our community. And we had a lovely story one day when I noticed a patient of mine, an elderly African man who I had been struggling to engage in doing any kind of activities. I knew he was incredibly isolated and he'd often turned to alcohol as consolation. And while he was waiting, I suggested he came and sat with us, which he looked incredibly concerned about. I asked him if he could sew and he was wearing rather shabby clothes that were unmended and said no he didn't sew and he thought that sewing was woman's work. Um, So the women set about showing him that actually he needed to change his mind. One of the women was embroidering a welcome sign for our waiting room in lots of different languages. So I'm going to change names here. Abraham said you haven't got my language. So I asked him to write down on a piece of paper, welcome in his language, which he did. And then I said to him, well, you'll have to do it on some fabric now because um, I don't think I'll be able to, to transpose that. So he did that. And I said, do you know what? You really need to make your mark on this piece of work. Can you just do a couple of stitches? So he said, well, okay then. And he was handed a needle threaded with black embroidery thread and at that point he said no no it has to be red gold and green at which point we realized we had him (laughs) and he ended up spending three and a half hours with us that afternoon he went into his appointment and then asked to come back and he's completed the largest bit of our sign And now when he comes to see me and tells me that he can't do things I can tell him that he thought he couldn't sew And that, for me, feels really representative of some of the things we've been able to achieve by doing things a bit differently, surprising people, disrupting expectations and opening up different spaces. So I wonder how both of you might evaluate the the state of health of the imagination in the NHS in 2020. (laughs) I think there is a lack of imagination in the health service, sadly, but I don't think there's a lack of potential imagination. So I do think that under the right conditions, we could end up being hugely creative and actually transform the service and transform it for the people that we serve. Well, I think there's a deadening lack of imagination amongst those who who run health services in terms of funding streams and directives. I see a massive imagination amongst particularly our young clinicians, uh, young doctors and young GPs. But, you know, they're terrified. They're terrified of being sued. They're terrified of not doing their various quality perform indicators. They're terrified of CQC coming in and saying their practice is no good. Uh, And between all this massive overload, thinking sideways, doing something original, uh, actually doing the right thing, 
becomes low on the list. Uh, and if you want to avoid being knocked on the head by someone, then you do as little as possible. We have a culture where the, you know, the incentive is always a monetary one. So we, we have to totally change the way the system is set and allow people to fulfill their dreams and imagination and allow them to do the right thing and allow their altruism to come out rather than to assume that we're all in it for ourselves. And I think, I think Michael, it's, isn't it also about the, our responsibility where we've been lucky enough to be in the position where we've done things to have the courage to stand out and stand up and, and, and demonstrate straight that it is possible to do it a different way and actually it can be okay yes jane it is and, and that's why i'm so full of admiration for you because it's very easy for an old fart like me who <laughs> doesn't care too much about uh, who's going to tell him what to do at my age i can be a little bit more extravagant in terms of following the, my own thoughts but you know if you're at the beginning of your career it's so terribly dangerous you know because yeah. the things you and I are doing uh, are often uh, not yet on the uh, National Institute of Clinical Excellence uh, ledger they're not things that the CQC is going to be particularly bothered about it's going to take extra time when you could be making sure that you're not making mistakes with your paperwork and all the rest of it so mm. I feel you're right, we need to get an army, a cohort of people who just don't fear this. And I hope the College of Medicine which I share is exactly that. But uh, I feel that you're going to need the younger generation, need enormous strength of their arms yes. to withstand this massive bureaucracy that's giving them, you know, from the beginning it gives them masses of knowledge but little wisdom. And then as they graduate in their careers, it gives them increasing restriction rather than allowing them to widen what they can do. Yeah. Fabulous. And you both uh, use food as a, as a key part of, of, of the work that you do. Why, why food? Why is food a good place to start, Jane? Well, who doesn't like a good meal? <laughs> and I think food is, I think it's so invitational and it's something that brings everybody together and it's essential to all of us. There's so many metaphors in it and it carries so many different polarities so we know in medicine you know how nourishing it can be but equally how destructive it can be if it's used or consumed in the wrong way it's a good place to start as a place of healing and bringing people together across a kitchen table I think is a really good way to start healing relationships to have conversations in a gentle way and recover our relationships with each other and you grow food as well in the in 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 the yard of your practice Yes. So we grow food a bit like I, I guess a lot of teachers are growing food in schools because I think there's one thing sitting in a consulting room and telling people what to do, which we know doesn't work because otherwise why is everybody still smoking? But actually doing things with people and making it possible. I think there's often a conversation about the fact that actually to eat healthily doesn't cost a lot of money, but actually it, it usually requires a lot of creativity and if you're traumatized which poverty does to people it's impossible to have the imagination and creativity poverty spreads across more than just income and so I think by doing things with people it makes a difference fantastic Michael well, I so agree with what Jane said, and uh, and I suppose food, because it's the biggest determinant of whether you fall ill or not, so it is the most crucial issue there is probably, but I, I love Jane's idea, it's about, it is about connectedness, it's about connecting people, it's about connecting us to the soil, particularly where I live in Devon and the farming, and, and it has so many aspects, whether it's the growing of the food, or whether it's the cooking, or whether it's the health benefits, 
Uh, it's sort of medicine in colour in many ways. And I think that, you know, what Jane's been describing is how when you start bringing these things into surgery, you change the whole culture and conversation. It's not just about the individual activity. It's about the whole perception of what uh, medicine's doing and what health is about. If the NHS were to change and adapt so that projects like yours and approaches like you've set out here and the future you so beautifully walked us through earlier were to become commonplace and just one part of a reimagining of the NHS, what would need to change? How would an NHS that did that be different from the NHS we see today? Well, it would be carrying out the rhetoric of what it says, but actually doing it for once because... Um, I'm fed up with politicians continually saying this is not a disease service, it's a health service, and then putting zilch into public health England and absolutely zilch into public health locally. I believe that as GPs we should be the local public health physicians conducting an orchestra or part of an orchestra creating local health, and that means funding a public health role for general practice and medicine in the future especially with COVID, especially with us needing to become more resilient and more self-dependent. And you can only do that if uh, if you hand the public health role back locally to those doctors, nurses, health people, social, and all the rest of it who are actually responsible for the local population. Mm. Thank you, Jane. I, I agree with Michael. I think that something about changing the culture within the health service. I think that currently, and as Michael said, um, there's a lot of rhetoric which points in the right direction. But actually what happens is that there is actually a huge amount of fear and a huge amount of pressure on staff working within the public sector. And I think that leads to a loss of loss of connection with our patients, a potential loss of compassion, loss of hope, and a sense that you can't make changes, that you can't do things differently. So I think it would be about improving relationships widely, so relationships with staff and with patients, and recognising the need to look after all of us as well. I think we're brought up in, in, in quite a traumatic way in the medical world. I think you're taught to to feel as though you haven't done a good day's work unless you go home completely dehydrated having not eaten (laughs) tired out and then we wonder why mistakes happen or why people feel frustrated or why there are the abuses of care so I think it's looking broadly and and making the whole system whole again Mm. Mm. I like that we're just, uh, you know, I suppose for people who are listening to this later, you know, we're recording this just as hopefully the COVID is is starting to ease. I mean, we will see. But uh, how do you feel that the this these months of COVID and the, the age of COVID-19 has changed these conversations? There are lots of conversations about not going backwards, go, going forward, the sort of build back better kind of stuff. Has COVID made the kind of shift that we've been talking about here more likely or less likely? likely do you think? I think it's made it more likely. Um, Where things are as Jane and I have described to some extent and there is a local community and there are link workers social prescribing, COVID has actually accelerated things because uh, we've been able to use this system to make sure that vulnerable people in their homes are, are in contact and that they get the volunteers they need and we develop a voluntary effort that mixes both national volunteers and local volunteers etc etc. And that will make more resilient communities in the future. So I think it's advanced agenda there. 
where unfortunately things aren't quite so together, I'm afraid it's put things back because uh, clearly there isn't the communication possible and you can't actually start putting link workers in place and you can't start those communications that do often depend upon face-to-face -face and human interaction and all the rest of it. But I think that's created a realisation that there is a gap there that needs filling where, where there isn't one. And uh, it could be actually very good for the future. And the, the other thing I've seen uh, with COVID is a greater ability and wish for people to be more self-dependent, often because they don't want to come into a surgery and risk catching COVID. They're often asking me if they were looking after someone with a stroke, what can they do? What, what, what can the neighbours do? Or the patients themselves saying, what can they do for themselves? And we're often taking moderate risks, but the risks are just shared between patient and doctor. And it comes back to the theme that I think Jane was, was saying just now, which is, is about allowing a greater degree of autonomy in local decision, both in the interaction between doctor and patient, but also in the surgery and the running of the local health initiatives generally, and less direction from above and ticking boxes, demoralising, people feeling unsafe, people thinking they're going to be sued and uh, taken to law. It's about uh, emancipating, I think, local clinicians and people to work together uh, and form their own solutions and be on the same side and not the slightly top-down, sometimes rather oppositional way in which we're brought up, and as Jane says, you know, going home exhausted, fed up and demoralised. Mm. And, and Jane, you, your, your practice actually appeared in a BBC TV programme as kind of uh, um, best practice around, uh, around com community responses to COVID. I wonder what, in your intention for your, to really embed your, your, your work in the kind of transition context, whether this helps or hinders? I think it definitely helps. It felt like we were suffocating before. I was thinking about this yesterday. It feels like there's lots of things around breathing going on, sort of figuratively as well as literally at the moment in the world. It did really feel like suffocation, but I, I don't know how much more I could stand of what was going on. And then suddenly it allowed us a pause where a lot of the misdirected and misguided obstacles that often felt that they were in the path of good care had to be moved out of the way in order for us to respond. And I think we recovered our creativity I think clinicians had to take the lead in this and it opened up quite a lot of space we felt incredibly fortunate having our garden space and our different relationships with patients so we felt like we'd already been catapulted somewhat into the future and so whilst other services were responding remotely we been able to bring patients into the garden for distance meetings and it's been particularly valuable for people who are incredibly isolated for our patients with really severe mental health problems particularly patients who are paranoid so sitting inside even with some remote contact has been really really difficult and we've managed to stave off some crisis admissions by meeting people regularly in the garden and actually using the plants and using that sensory experience to calm and soothe and it's it's so empowering so actually we've been able to practice some of the things we've wanted to do and it's speeded up the things that we've wanted to achieve and as a result of that we've been building a new project so we're developing some story walks across Camden with the idea of linking up other green spaces and linking in with our voluntary sector partners so we've been working with our local community centre we've been working with the wonderful Jane Ridderford of Global Generation 
and the story garden, walking the old ways with the idea of walking ourselves and our patients back to health. I'm going to put my my transition towns hat on for this question, which is uh, for this to really scale up and to really have an impact that's commensurate to the problems. What other projects or infrastructure needs to be put in place in the community around your GP practice? After all, as they don't actually say, no GP surgery is an island. And what key things need to be put into place in your dreams that would help you to accelerate those necessary changes? I think it's about making good relationships with all the other people around about and forming those bridges. So I I don't think it requires a huge amount of investment. We've funded most of our projects on goodwill, gifting and reciprocity. And going back to a time when we would have had to live together as humans with mutual obligation and that reciprocity between people who realise that they are reliant on each other. I think if you can get to know the other people doing works and you can use all the public spaces sort of reclaim the commons if you like actually I think it would be possible and and like you say what I like about all your stuff Rob is just about imagining it and imagining it differently and having the hope that it can be different and feeling audacious enough to decide to have a go <laughs> I agree Jane I think it's about connection and you know the sort of connection you're seeing in places like Ilfracombe at the moment during Covid where there is a forum that where the the doctors meet with the police with probation with the counsellors with the head teachers and where they can communally make sure that health is the agenda and that they're basically running the show and they're not being run by local commercial interests or by national directives. They're they're able to focus entirely on the good health and resilience of that local community. And to some extent, for me, it's back to the future, because when I started in general practice 35 years ago, there was that sort of community. It was a very much a care community between the vets, the, the undertakers, the, the chemists, about caring for people and animals locally. But this is more about caring for health, and, and, and therefore we all need to be part of that and recognise that you know, from town planning uh, to things like what's in sale in the local supermarket and how it's sold, all these things are part of health, and therefore we need to join the whole thing up. If people are listening to this and are inspired by what they've heard and would love for their local GP surgery to become the kind of surgery that we've discussed here, where should they start? How could they enable and support this kind of shift? The first thing is to probably go and see one or two demonstrator sites like Jane's Surgery, like Sam's Surgery. A lot of people come to my own. Um, So I think it's to, to get a whiff of one what it looks like, and two, not only why it's good for the community and the patients, why it's good for the doctors and the nurses too, why they feel remoralised and they've got a sparkle in their eye, and then take that back to their partners and then start small, start with uh, maybe just a, a small garden, you know, you only need a few um, bits of wood and some earth to make a small herbal physic garden or something like that. Start with something like that, or maybe patient groups, or start with some patient activities like going on walks and talks. And then bit by bit, uh, you'll find that your partners, even your practice managers, having to watch the bottom line, will begin to see not only that that's looking better for patients and people, but also uh, in terms of sustainability of your surgery for the future, it means that you've got your your foot in the ground there and no no one's going to usurp you if you're doing a really good job 
that the whole community respects. And, and, and just to give an you know, example of that, um, we've got a developer around our surgery who is a fairly ruthless um, bottom line developer. But the whole town came out saying that they should give us some land in the new development and a community garden. And the power of the people spoke, and that's now in the plan. Uh, if you get people on the side in that way, things begin to happen. Jane, where, where should people start? I mean, I couldn't agree more with Michael in the sense of just starting small and not being afraid or too wedded to the destination. I think it's about keeping the destination in your sights, but celebrating along the way any small gains that you make because that keeps people together. And that's a way of building relationships, which is what it should be all about. At the beginning, when we were starting our garden, we visited various different projects to see what worked, to make connections, to make friends. We went to the Lambeth GP Food Cooperative, which is amazing. And there was one single hand practice that just had one planter outside that was a signal and it was tended by one patient a lot of the time people feel that if you're not impacting on large numbers it can't be any good but I think it's about valuing care not caring about the values so much because it's too much about the numerics and I think it needs to move to the stories that either of you have in relation to the to the question of, the, of, of of the show that I haven't asked you the right question for any final thoughts, Michael? I love Jane's from numerics to stories because I think that's exactly where we need to go. We need to get back to the colour and the poetry of community life and life as a family doctor, and away from this very grey world of filling in boxes, not feeling very inspired to do so, and having to do so in order to earn an income and all the rest of it. And and I suppose the overarching feeling that I have now, looking back, you know, over 30, 40 years in general practice, is that people came into general practice in those days for, for autonomy because they loved being king of their own dunghill. They got things wrong, but they were very inspired and enthused by what they did. Now we sort of, we're in handcuffs and we have a demoralised uh, workforce and we have quite a lot of patients who feel that the, the family doctor isn't what they had in the past. And I, the only way I can see around that is handing back the say to local communities, to general practice that becomes part of the community. So that's an advance from how things were. But basically handing the flame back there and seeing that as the focus of real change and not some government directive, not some health and well-being board making some decision. It has to be far more granular, far more local. It's about the head of the supermarket talking to the headmaster, talking to the doctor, talking to the county planner uh, and making things different in that particular town and village. If we can do that, then I think we can make an enormous change uh, which we can only do in a way in the NHS because as medics we're paid um, to do the job not by each patient coming in by the hour so unlike private systems the NHS is the very best designed to do this and of course we haven't in the past but need to do so. Yeah, I, I think that's right, because we are very much one of the only places for many people where you can come, um, one of the only licensed listeners in a secular world, which is why I think that we need to borrow from all the religions and all the, the old traditions, where often there's been a combination of that spirituality with healing. 
and that there's been so much fragmentation, I think, in the modern world. And so I think it's about looking backwards and forwards and taking some of the things that we've acquired along the way, but not seeing progress in a linear way, but actually pulling things in from some of the things we've lost and left behind. So remembering again what we were to each other, how we want to be to each other going forwards. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much both for your for your time. I'm sure your time is very precious at, at the moment, so I'm deeply, deeply grateful for you both for making the time to come along. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you also to Rebecca Kinge for her question, to Ben Adicott for production and theme music, and uh, see you next time. Mm-hmm.